We're such a docile crowd. <laughs> May we sing of His mercy all the days of our life. For God is good. He's worthy to be praised. He has done great things. I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to a small book just before John's Revelation. Just before John's Revelation in the very final book of your New Testament, for on this Celebration Sunday, we're going to look to this text to find our way forward when the world is on fire. I don't know if you've been paying attention. There's a culmination of world events that is taking place before our eyes that could be leading up to the end, at least the end that we know of in the book of Revelation. And it may be that God in His patience holds off that return for a while, or it may be tomorrow. And I want you to know that in spite of what's happening in our world, there's reason for hope. Even in a world where up is down and down is up, have you noticed that? When evil is celebrated as good, the world is in trouble. And today, evil is being celebrated as good. The indoctrination of our culture, particularly our youth, has come full circle. They're questioning everything, flipping the world upside down. Our culture before our very eyes, particularly the older you are, doesn't even resemble the culture that we were raised in, or even the culture of 10 years ago. But I want you to know this morning that some things never change. There's a constant in life that, that we need to learn to lean on in times like this. There would be some who say, why in the world would you have a celebration Sunday when the world is on fire? And my question to you is, why wouldn't we, those who know the grace of God in Christ Jesus? Why wouldn't we? There are promises made to us in the Scripture that are left yet unfulfilled, but I'm here to tell you God always keeps His promises, and He will make those promises reality perhaps sooner than you know, and His grace and His mercy and His peace and His love will assure you and remind you and fill you to the place where you know that everything is going to be okay. That is my prayer for you on this Celebration Sunday. But I also know that some of you bring some weightiness to the service. Some of you know things that I don't know and have seen things that I haven't seen and have been through things that I haven't been through. But I've been through some stuff myself this year. And I'm probably in a better place to offer praise and thanksgiving than it was when everything was going so well. Because sometimes God lets things slip through your hands to show you greater things. And if that's you this morning, I pray that God will show you greater things. I pray that you will know His mercy. I pray that you will grasp the depths of His love. I pray that you might know his grace, not just in saving, but, but sustaining you as the world spirals out of control. And I pray that you might know beyond a shadow of a doubt that soon the promises made 
to God's people will be fulfilled in God's people, and we will stand in the presence of our King. So how do we get from where we are to where we need to be at a time such as this? We are told to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, as Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. We are told and reminded that though you have not seen Him, that God of all creation and His Son, Jesus Christ, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now as the world spirals, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's what I want to talk to you about today. Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Not our glory, not the world's glory, but the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What I want you to be reminded of is that for those of us who know Him, there is a spiritual joy that goes far beyond any celebration. That is an attitude of dependence. It's an attitude that's not based on circumstances, but based on promise. Spiritual joy is the deep and abiding confidence that regardless of whatever circumstance you find yourself in, all is well between God the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit in your life, no matter what. As we reflect upon that, we turn to Jude. For there were believers that Jude will write to who are living, losing a, a grasp on their reality of grace and peace and mercy and love. Because some people have infiltrated their circles and began to question and cause doubt. Perhaps through the circumstances of the day, they're saying, show me your God. I can show you the problems. You show me your God. And some of them were, were stumbling, and some of them were little-souled, and some of them needed some, some, some boosting, some encouragement, some reminders of the things that mattered most in the worst of times, perhaps persecution, perhaps false teaching, perhaps being drawn away by, by their own desires and lusts. And Jude writes simply to encourage he writes to encourage and to restore their spirit of thanksgiving. He writes that they might return to this attitude of thanksgiving and, and celebration. And he writes so that they might hang on. Even in the worst of times, they might hang on until God does what only God do to him be glory forever and ever. It's just a little book. But it helps us to acknowledge that sometimes in our walk, there are dry seasons. Anyone know one of those seasons? Can you point back? Where is he? And what is he doing? Does he even know what's going on in my life? Does he understand what I'm going through? Does he see this world on fire? Not only does he see it, he is over it and sovereign. And he's at everything under control, even when you think it's spinning out of control. But we need to be reminded of that. And Jude reminds these readers the glorious hope that they have, the spiritual joy that they must tap into 
to get through the difficult times in life. May you know it this morning. Father, again, bless our time, encourage our hearts, remind us of much of what we've studied over the last numbers of months, and raise in us a spirit of joy and thanksgiving. And show us how to celebrate the goodness of God. That's our prayer. May it be so today, I'd ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Jude identifies himself as the brother, or we would know the half-brother of James. James was the leader in the church at Jerusalem. We've read about him in the book of Galatians over the last several weeks. Jude, his half-brother, is writing this, and he begins by saying, I am a servant He's writing in a spirit of humility, and he's writing in a spirit of humility because he understands that people are hurting. He understands that those whose faith is small are struggling. He understands that some have been deceived by false teachers. He, un- he understands that some are being led astray. He's understand- he understands that some are losing their grip on the reality that God is good all of the time. So he says, I'm coming to you in a spirit of humility as a slave or a servant of Jesus Christ himself to bring encouragement to you, but especially to those, he says, who are called, who've been chosen and selected as recipients of grace, and they're called and loved in God the Father, and they're kept by Jesus Christ. He said, hey, listen, no matter what happens here… The God who has rescued you through His Son, Jesus Christ, will keep you and sustain you even in these difficult and dark times. Do not give up hope. Don't lose your way. Don't look at what's happening around you. See the glory of your King in essence as what He will say at the end of the letter. Boy, do we all need a little bit of that encouragement once in a while. At least I do. In just 10 minutes… The evening news will put a knot in your stomach, and the only thing that untwists that knot is the peace of God that comes through Jesus Christ. He's saying, hey, listen, hang on. I know right now things look bleak. May you know God's mercy, verse 2, not giving you what you deserve, but blessing you in the highest places of heaven. May you know His mercy. May you experience His peace. May you know His love. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and prays that they might know the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus. You will never exhaust an understanding of how much God loves you and how much Christ has blessed you with mercy and grace and peace and hope. So to those who are under the gun, so to speak. He is asking that they might know mercy and peace and love as those called by God through Jesus Christ. And then he says, may it be multiplied to you at this particular time. May it be increased. May you know it to its fullest measure. And no matter what, may you never forget those blessings. May they be at the top of the heap and your reasons to celebrate. Isn't it funny as Christians… Sometimes stuff and circumstances ascend to the top of the heap. But when those circumstances go south, 
So does our joy. And he's writing to those people and saying, you're basing this on all the wrong stuff. And I pray that what you do know will increase to its fullest knowledge, and that he sustains you in these difficult times. Beloved, pleading as a pastor, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. I love that word, common salvation. Sometimes we get this notion that our testimony isn't as glorious as the other person's. No matter what your testimony might be, if it is in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, it is for the glory of God alone, and you have been spectacularly saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is a glorious salvation. Don't compare it to anybody else. You were dead in your trespasses and sin and now alive unto God. He said, do you understand all of those common denominators? Do you understand everything that goes into that? Yet I found it necessary to write. I feel compelled to write and to appeal to you to contend for the faith that was delivered once for all to the saints. He's calling us to fight the good fights. In the context, he's calling us to fight against the false teachers who are spinning these tales and bringing discouragement to God's people. But I also think there's a component here that's individually manifest. Sometimes you and I need to contend for our own faith and fight for our own faith and say no to the whispers that come into our ears and vigorously hang on to all the blessings and benefits that we have in Christ, not to be distracted by circumstances, but to be overwhelmed by His glory. I don't know about you, I have to fight for that sometimes because I look at this world and say, what's the point? The point is for the glory of God. We haven't even scratched the surface on that glory. He's saying, listen, I feel compelled to write to you to fight these false teachers and these doubts that are stirring in your soul to vigorously defend and to hang on and to continue and to not give up because when Jesus said it is finished, it was done. He is giving them an eschatological kind of perspective. Jesus Christ who saved you and said it was finished, even though it's not finished, will finish it someday. Hang on until that day. He's going to say it a couple of times in this text. And then he identifies these people, kind of slipped in unnoticed, who were long ago designated for this condemnation. They are apostates. They're false brethren. They're going to challenge true and genuine faith and try and add things to it. He said, I warned you about this. Ungodly people They will pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to try and entice you with every last temptation of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Watch out for them. They're perverting the grace of God, and they're promising you that in Christ, You can enjoy all of the guilty, sinful pleasures of the world and still be in Christ, but that is not the gospel. They perverted the gospel. They've drawn us, enticed us away into this world, and listen, not one of us is innocent of this. It's easy to get comfortable and enticed by the things of the world. It's drawing their attention back. 
to the things that give us our greatest comfort and warning us about those who pervert the grace of God, who preach this gospel that there's no strings attached. Do whatever you want. Live your best life now. He calls it a perversion of grace. I'm here to tell you there are many perversions of grace in evangelicalism today. You don't get to do whatever you want. You've been bought with a price, and you're a child of the king. And just as much as Jude was a servant and a slave, so are you to do the bidding of your master, not to do what you want to do. There's this twisting of the gospel, and what it leads to is this damning reality that Jesus expounds upon in the Sermon on the Mount, where we have masses of people walking this wide road to destruction because they failed to understand the goodness of God and salvation alone. And they will gather together and say, Lord, Lord, we did this on your behalf. And he will say in crushing words, I don't like the text. You say, well, how can you love the word and not like the text? I don't don't like the text because it's sobering. And Jesus will say, I didn't know you. I don't know you. Depart from me. All because of these people who are perverting the gospel getting these, these little soul believers to believe in some false narrative about that gospel and to discourage their, their spirits and, and their souls, and He's calling us back. Throughout the text, he will, he will call back. He will speak about these people. He will point out the errors of their teaching. We've been through this book expositorily. We won't go through it again today. But I just want to remind you, in these four verses, Jude kind of sets an agenda towards uh, spiritual joy and, 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 a, and a heart of celebration and thanksgiving. And we know and understand first and foremost, and it goes with our study in the book of Galatians, that it is all by grace, God's unmerited favor. You did nothing, 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 and yet in His grace, He gave you everything, everything, everything. And you might say, I don't have everything. You don't know what's going on in my life, and you're the one Jude's writing to. He's saying, yes, you do. It just hasn't been realized yet. You have everything. He's calling them to remembrance. He's calling them to go back and, and understand the blessings, and, and, and He's calling to those who, who are of little souls to build up their faith and to give them some steadfastness in the midst of all that was happening. The Bible says that by grace we, have sa- we are saved through faith. We've been studying that deeply. B.B. Warfield, great Princeton theologian, once wrote, it's not faith in Christ that saves us. It is Christ who saves us through faith. Isn't it interesting how we get that backwards sometimes? Maybe our discouragement and our little souls come from us believing that somehow our faith is too small. And he says, but your God in Christ is so big. You've got this backwards. You don't have enough faith, but there's enough grace in God through Jesus Christ to see you all the way home. That's a good reminder to all of us, isn't it? I can't muster the faith, then rest and rely on His lavish grace to see you through the challenges and the difficulties. So, I want to call you to a place where today we celebrate the grace of God. We won't get into all the ins and outs. We have 
We've dug a little bit deep here, both in our morning worship and our ABF classes and even on Wednesday nights. As we dig deep into this grace, it's not to confound you with all the depth of the theology. It is to help you understand that you did nothing, 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 and thereby your salvation is so glorious, glorious, glorious. And as soon as you get that, your spirit of joy will return to your soul as you understand that God is bigger than anything that you face in this mere temporal existence. As he called us to in the first couple of verses, we celebrate the peace of God. We're told by Paul in the book of Romans that because we have been justified or declared righteous by faith in Christ alone, we have peace with God. You will never again be at enmity. You will never again answer for your sin and an eternal kind of judgment. You have been freed from the power of sin. You have been filled with the Holy Spirit. You've been stamped by a seal. And Jesus says, mine, and no one will pluck you out of my hand. And the Father greater than I, no one will pluck you out of my Father's hand. Tell me that's not glorious. The worlds may eventually kill us, but they cannot touch our soul. It is secure in Jesus Christ alone. Do you have that peace? Do you rest in that peace? Do you rely on that peace? Perhaps you're a little, a little sold this morning. This is what James is trying to do, point us in, in the right direction. So not only will we have this peace with God through Christ being justified by faith, but that the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard our hearts and minds and the deepest and darkest of valleys. I don't know about you. I need that sometimes. God, may your peace prevail in my restless soul. As we look at the grace of God and the peace of God we understand that outside of Jesus Christ, there is no grace, and thereby there is no peace, but inside. Salvation's initial euphoria and excitement, grasping the deeper things of God, deepens into a richer, fuller, more profound understanding of the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The more you understand Him, the deeper your faith grows. And the deeper your faith grows, the more you understand this is all about Him, to His praise and to His glory forever and ever. So we reflect upon these truths and understand the realities of that. Even for those little souls that Jude is writing to and his warnings against these false teachers that have confused their hearts and minds. We go through these periods in our life sometimes that, that we lose our way a little bit. And by lose our way, I'm not just talking about a stumble here and there. I'm, thought, I'm talking about those seasons in our life where we have failed in a colossal way. Enough of this prosperity gospel that says we don't ever stumble and fall. James says everyone stumbles and falls. And you've been there, right? 
And because you know the grace and the goodness and the glory of God, you stumble and sin against Him. And it causes you to to not run to Him in those times, and and it causes you this sense of of embarrassment, this deep-seated sense that somehow you don't measure up. Well, here's the bad news. You don't measure up. You have failed colossally. But God isn't measuring you. He is measuring the grace that comes in Jesus Christ, and that grace is enough. When we look at that reality, we need to be reminded that Christ died for you once, but He intercedes for you forever. What does that mean? The moment you come to know Christ as Savior, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And when one of these offenses come against you because of your own failure in sin, Jesus, as your advocate, goes to the Father and says, it's covered under the blood, forgiven. First John tells us, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are you thankful for that? Boy, we can make a mess out of this life, and every one of us does at some point in time in our Christian experience. To be honest, some of us do it more than once, or twice, or three times. Sinclair Ferguson, as he addresses this in his text, Grace Alone, says that Jesus' ministry of grace and peace continues even now, for He is present with His Father on our behalf. He is interceding for us. What a relief it is to know that when you have made a mess of your life, and when you feel the accusations of Satan and condemnation and condemn yourself, when you're ashamed to go into the presence of God, when you go to church and look around thinking that you're a hypocrite, indeed you have fallen and you are a failure, indeed you have failed. But remember that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Remember that He is there for your sake. Remember that He died for you once, but He intercedes for you forever. There will not be one sin held against God's elect. It is finished. But it doesn't mean we don't sin. If you're discouraged, made a mess, if you made some bad choices and you're reaping the consequences, stop blaming everybody else. Accept the responsibility and know that as a child of God, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and you must go to Him and confess, and He is faithful to forgive and to cleanse you from the mess that you made. The circumstances remain, and we carry carry that painful reality through life, but it will never be held against us. For we stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ through His sacrificial atonement and imputed righteousness. Are you thankful for that this morning? Don't get discouraged. We could equally say, stop it. Don't don't sin either. But we're not home yet. Those who perceive themselves as the strongest among us are those closest to a fall, as James warns. You and I can't do this ourselves. We are absolutely dependent, absolutely dependent on the grace of God. And He calls us 
to act at various points in our salvation. Through this process of sanctification, we're sustained not by our cooperation, but by God's grace and faithfulness to us. If you learn nothing else, pay attention. God doesn't get you started in the Christian life and say, there, you're on your own. Make the most of this. He starts you on the Christian life, and he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. My grace is sufficient, and when you lose sight of that grace, you're going to be in trouble. And I will call you back to that grace as an advocate with the Father, and I will, I will cleanse you from your unrighteousness, and I will remind you, you can't do this without me. Do you know that grace? As we reflect upon this sustaining grace, We know that our lives in every single aspect are governed by the saving and sustaining grace of God, His unmerited favor in our lives, and this is for His glory alone. So tell me your reason for not having a thankful heart. Tell me your reason for doubting the goodness of God. Tell me your reason. for listening to these false teachers and chasing after unfulfilled promises. As we reflect upon the truth of the gospel that has changed everything and truly grasp the depths of the grace and the mercy and the peace and the love of God, there's no other avenue than for the believer to celebrate their hope in Christ alone. A hope is a a confident expectation. And when those things of this world rob you of your hope, I pray that you find your way back through Jesus Christ the righteous and understand that hope is not found within us. It's not something we create. It's not something that we do. The hope of the believer grounded in the grace and peace of God in Jesus Christ is a gift. And that hope as a gift comes from the Spirit of God who bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. And we will always be children of God. And this grace will see you all the way home. So when it's called to persevere, he says in verse 17, beginning to, to wrap up his letter of challenge and encouragement, but you... You're different than these false teachers. You're different from those who have lost their way. You're different from those who don't grasp and understand. You know all of those things, so you must remember. Remember what? True truth, the promises of God, the Scriptures and all that God said is a reality in our lives. Beloved, remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have tribulation. This is not all bliss and promise and blessing. There's going to be some hard times and and some hard seasons. Remember what he said, I've overcome the world. Remember what Peter said, stave off those false teachers. Remember what Peter said, go back to the book and those precious promises that no one can take away from us. And as we look at all of that, Finding a reason to celebrate as we, as we understand that hope that comes from Christ alone. 
We're able to discern the times and stave off the accusations of the evil one being rooted and grounded in the love of God through Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. They said to you, these false teachers, or these apostles, excuse me, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. They're mockers. They're blinded with hate. They are delusional. I defy any of you to watch a half an hour of the evening news and argue against the reality that we live in a delusional world of cognitive dissonance where people are blinded by hate. They are mockers of God. I challenge you. Just look around you. It is reality. Jude says, don't forget, before Jesus comes again, there will be tribulation, but He's coming again. Don't, don't forget those promises. Don't fail to understand that God's still not on His throne. Don't fail to understand that His grace and His mercy and His peace will sustain you in these last times, in the midst of these loud delusional scoffers who follow after ungodly passions. They have no capacity for holiness. And as Peter writes, as obedient children, stop being conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who has called you is holy, you be holy in all your conduct. Since this is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. But as these false teachers who cause division, worldly people with no ability to reason to the truth. This is a, an encapsulation of our culture today. I'm tired of yelling at the TV. Anybody have that problem? What, what is your problem? Can you be that stupid? Cognitive dissonance has always been a psychological state where you have two competing thoughts in, in your head, and, and it causes a restlessness, and, and you can't sleep at night because you're trying to resolve it. It seems like our world lavishes in cognitive dissonance. Save the whales and kill the children. You want to talk about a godless generation? What is the matter with this world? He said it was going to come. These people are devoid of the Spirit, but you are different, beloved. And in order to sustain the pressures of the day, you need to build yourselves up in the most holy faith. You need to be doctrinally sound, spiritually secure. You need to maintain an eternal perspective of your most holy faith. Praying in the Spirit, literally praying, thy will be done. That's a difficult thing to do. The crazy perversions of the world, thy will be done. He's called them to destruction. He told us in the last days they will have their day. But I've read the end of the book, we win, don't we? We win. He's calling them to build up their faith. 
in Christ alone, keeping themselves in the love of God that he mentioned early in the text, staying there, putting out in the effort to understand the depth of that love. He says in the text, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal death. What does that mean? The merciful character of God that will not allow us to undergo any kind of pressure or difficulty in this world without giving us the grace to get through it. And just when we believe that we can't do it anymore and the world is on fire, Jesus will raise from his throne. It's over. And that is his final act of mercy. I'm finally taking you home from this nonsense. Even so, come Lord Jesus. This is the stuff that sustains us. This is the stuff that keeps us. This is where a spirit of joy and thanksgiving comes from. Jesus being on the top of the heap and a grasp of the realities of the blessings of God. We will stand before Him and be glorified. Those who have died will be resurrected to newness of life. And for all of us, we shall stand in the presence of our King and we shall see Him and become like Him for we shall finally see him as he is. The battle's over. The struggle's done. The challenges are taken away, and he shall reign forever and ever. He encourages these people. He said, now those among you have mercy on those that doubt. May you have an an extra sense of kindness and compassion toward those who are struggling in the midst of life under the sun. It's easy to get to the place where we throw a Bible verse and say, see, everything's okay. I just quoted you. All things work together for good. I don't know what your problem is any longer. So it's not that easy. It's a struggle. It's a challenge. He says in verse 23, save others. Simply saying, seize them by force, those who are being led astray, and bring them back to the truth. Keep reminding them of the love of God and the mercy of God. Snatch them out of the fire. Snatch them from the place that they're getting singed, moving away in doubt from the faith. Remind them that they will persevere under the grace of God alone. You know, sometimes we can get so close to the world that's on fire, we can get singed. But that fire shall not consume you, for the love of God consumes you, and it keeps you, and it sustains you, and it promises you that He will see you all the way home. So go out there and implore people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God, but show mercy with fear. Understand the eternal matters at stake. For those of these false teachers in the world stained with the ugliness of sin, may you develop a hatred of even the garments that are stained by the flesh. He's reminding these people that in the end it's going to get hard. And there are going to be challenges. There's going to be things that undermine us. There's going to be things that cause us to look away. There's going to be things that cause us to lose our sight and understanding of the glory of our King. In the same text, Grace Alone by Sinclair Ferguson, 
He cites a passage of Scripture in Daniel chapter 7. He writes, I, Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This is a vision of the Messiah and his sovereign authority over every circumstance and event in life. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Daniel sees God the Father, the Ancient of Days, sitting on a throne in blazing majesty, surrounded by his heavenly court. In his vision, someone comes in the clouds of heaven towards the glorious one, and he seems to be using the clouds as his triumphant chariot, and he approaches the throne of the majesty on high, and he comes to his throne to be exalted, and he receives from the most high authority in heaven and on earth, and his name is Jesus, your Savior, your Redeemer, our hope, the very one who will sustain you in difficult times. As we reflect on this world, we celebrate the glory of God, and by that I mean His sovereignty, His absolute authority over anything and everything that takes place under heaven. For if he is not sovereign, we are to fend for ourselves in this ugly world on fire. Are you thankful that he's sovereign? He goes before you. He orders your steps. He protects you in front. He protects you behind. He walks with you through the valleys of the shadow of evil. When that doubt overwhelms you, it is that King of kings and Lord of lords that has dominion in the past who has dominion and the presence and will have dominion forever and ever and ever. And God's people said, amen. That's our king. That's the glory of salvation. <coughs> That's what he writes of. So what is the secret then? To keeping our perspective and hanging on to our hope in the midst of a hopeful world. R.C. Sproul in his commentary the book of Galatians, relays that years ago we had a consultant at Ligonier who asked me this, what is the single most important thing that you as a theologian want to teach people who are not Christians? What do you want to communicate? R.C. said, I want to communicate to unbelievers who God is. Unbelievers know that God is, for God has revealed Himself manifestly to every one of His creatures. Though they might not acknowledge it, everyone knows that He is. What they don't know is who He is. Watching a hunting show, yes, I am that redneck, right? So I'm watching this hunting show. His name is Jim Shockey. He's traveled the whole world. He talks about the world being billions and billions and billions of years old. And I just look at this man and, and I wonder, well, where is he? Where, where is he? The most recent... Uh, program of his. He was in the middle of Russia hunting for rams. His guide spoke very little English. I'm watching all of this transpire, and, and, and in the context of the episode, 
They take the wild game that they're after, and they find themselves on a mountaintop 25 miles from their base camp, and the sun is setting. So there's this man who believes that the universe is billions and billions of years old, and he's sitting around a fire, and he's speaking to his cameraman, and he says this, everybody needs times like this when you have very little food and, and very little water, and you're in the midst of the wilderness a long way from home, but you can sit by a warm fire and eat some wild game and, and take a drink and, and watch the spectacular sunset. And he says, it stirs in you this notion to be thankful. See, even unbelievers know that he is and he is glorious. And every once in a while, God gives them a glimpse. And I don't know about his salvation, but R.C. is right. The unbeliever needs to see the glory of God. But R.C. wasn't finished in this interview. He said, this consultant went on to ask, what is the most important thing you want to teach Christians? In his inevitable way, he said, well, that's easy. I want to be able to teach Christians who God is because it's the same problem we have with a pagan. Our understanding of God, of the being and character of God is so thin and so superficial that we, even in our sanctified state, have almost no understanding of who God is in His majesty, in His glory, and in His being. We don't really understand who we are until we first understand who God is. And once we understand who God is, we see in that the mirror of revelation of God's perfect holy character. We instantly see in that same mirror the radical difference between who God is and who we are. I've always believed that that is the essence of finding joy, and that is the essence of long-suffering. And that is the essence of perseverance. It's not spiritual gymnastics or deeper theology. It's to know that we are creatures from the dirt, and He is holy, holy, holy. But He has lavished His love upon us. If you could get that… Everything else is going to fall in place. So Jude finishes his letter, and he writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to him be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time both now and forevermore, and God's people said, let it, let it be so. That is the secret of spiritual joy and thanksgiving. For even when the world is on fire, we have a Savior who sits on the throne and has dominion over every principality and every power and every problem and every situation. And he assures us that everything's going to be okay. The problem is people become big and God becomes small. The solution, God must be big 
and you must be small for his glory alone. So John writes in the book of the Revelation that I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and all the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. The elders fell down and worshiped. Father, accept our worship this morning. The world and its problems have become big. The condition of your people, their lack of awareness and understanding of the grandeur and glory of the King is under attack. There are many who are little sold who come to this season of thanksgiving and ask, for what? For what? Show them your glory. Show them who you are. Remind them how the story ends. Remind them of where it began in Christ alone. May they persevere to the end. May they, may they be filled with thanksgiving. May they have the spiritual joy that seems so elusive in our world. May you teach them, may you teach all of us to worship. Good times and to worship even more in the worst of times. For our God is big and his glory is great. And all things are coming to a crescendo where he stands and we see him and become like him. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, but until that day, preserve your people for your glory, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.